Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Ruvin, daf kuf, page 100. I have been waiting for this daf since the beginning, but the part of the daf that I'm waiting for is at the very, very end. So stay tuned. In the meantime, there's plenty of juicy, racy, spicy business going on in this daf. Uh, before we begin with this stuff, however, we're going to just tap off that last Mishnah from yesterday's, four, the four Mishnah from yesterday's daf. So you've got a tree, right? And the tree is has an overhang, meaning the, um, I don't think I know the word for this in English, or if there is a word for this in English. In, in Hebrew, the word pe'er, means like the whole crown of the glory of the tree, which is all that greenery, all the leaves, right? So I'm sure there's a word for it in English. I just, I'm not, I don't know what it is. Um, so the, that is the part that's hanging down, you know, from, it's a luxurious tree. So it's so big that some of it, you know, reaches down to almost to the ground within three tzvachim from the ground, right? And so then that's, that's this case. If the tips of the branches are no higher than three tefachim from the ground, you can carry under it. Of course, no, no, this is this part is a little tricky because if you have tips of the branches that are no higher than three tefachim from the ground, then the amount of room you have to carry under those branches is three tefachim, which again, that's your hand's breadth. That's not very high, but okay, fine. You know, and it may have relevance for what you could pass under, let's say, you know, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to presuppose, you know, oh, it could never be used. Presumably it could be used. That's why it's here. That's why it's a discussion. And then, and then if the roots, right, because here we're talking about some big glorious tree, if the roots themselves are three tzvachim higher than the ground, and you can all picture these, you know, old, um, trees that have you know very thick roots then you don't you can't sit on them because that would be using that tree on shabbat and right the moment you've got three tzvachim above the ground you already are in um you know the question of have you the tree itself becomes kind of its own separate domain here okay now moving on to the daf itself the fact is there is a lot to discuss in terms of the shape of the tree and the location of the tree and the roots and so on. And then there's some side points, you know, that what to what the tree is compared to or what the cases are compared to. And we end up with, you know, discussion of carbonate, of sacrifices. And I just want to make mention of two halachic concepts that show up throughout all of this. It's pretty long, this stuff. One of which is called shave valtase, which means that, you know, the idea that there are halachic circumstances where you where you sit, shave, you sit and do nothing. Shave valtasa and you don't do anything. And that has halachic ramifications as compared to if you got up and went and did something. And as much as it has halachic ramifications, we're going to have to wait to some other daf where it comes up again to talk about it in greater depth. And the other point is, and here when I said that we'd talk about the sacrifices, there's a discussion of baltosif. Baltosif, again, meaning adding beyond that which is necessary and therefore in some ways kind of disparaging or desecrating the mitzvah itself that doesn't have that extra. Baal Tosef, don't, don't add, don't do extra. And in this case, it's a, you know, it comes up in the context of, 
a certain amount of sprinkling of blood that comes up with the sacrifices. Again, these are concepts that show up in many different areas of halacha, and we will have to see them again, because where we really want to get to is Amud Bet, um, and I'm going to hand this over to your Dana. Yeah, the other halachic concept here uh, that appears is we do see Baltosev uh, mentioned again, you know, with its counterpart um, of, uh, you know, uh, Baltigra. And it's interesting to see, you know, that we sort of had never seen this concept introduced before. And now it appears, um, you know, twice within just a few dapim of each other. So I, I always like this piece about Gamara where, we just sort of, we could be talking about one thing, but where we see these, you know, large underlying uh, halakhic concepts pop up. And very often when we're first introduced to them, it's not the classic sugya, which explains them, right? And is that, you know, does that make sense? And it's sort of almost like I think the so. readers sort of like kind of needed to know, like, you know, what that, what that was, even though the first time you may see it, particularly when you're learning Gemara in Dafyomi, it's just how you encounter it uh, sort of in the order of the Gemara, but not necessarily through its classic or m- most well-known sugya about that particular topic. Right. There's a, I believe it's a Latin phrase, which is escaping me now. In my own defense, it's quite late where I am right now. Um, but there's a Latin, I believe it's a Latin phrase. It means like that location is the prime location of this source, of this term, of this concept, and neither of these, right? This duff is not the prime source for a, for any of these halakhic concepts. Not those two, anyway. Right, right. Coming but I think, again, a I, little I bit want more. to acknowledge the challenges is that, you know, it's like you'll just come across this daf again, because of the system of daf yomi. There's no explanation, you know, there's no, nothing's asked your head like major halachic concept, you know, um, you know, and look at this. So yeah, it's just like you, you're supposed to know that. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead to Amud Bet. I don't think anyone who's listening, who's already prepped the dap is going to be shocked that we're talking about Amud Bet. Um, there's some very interesting Gemaras here. Um, and the first is, you know, it's really almost sort of uh out of well, okay, they were talking about this, uh, you know, this particular pasuk here, um, uh, you know, uh, that has. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm, I lost the pasuk here. Um, you know, the atzuraglaim chote, right? And this had to do with um, talking about, um, you know, whether or not, um, you know, about walking um, on grass and things like that. And instead, they now take that same pasuk, which is a mishle. And uh, they have a whole different way to interpret it, which basically is, you know, the Gemara very explicitly saying that, you know, spousal rape is something that's completely and totally um, not acceptable, right? 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 So this, you know, initially this Pasuk and Paragyotet Pasuk Bet, which says, you know, literally he who, you know, who brings, uh, who brings with his feet sins, right? So Rami Barhama says in the name of Asi that it means basically a man is not allowed to uh, force his wife, uh, you know, into, uh, into a sexual encounter. Um, and so I think, you know, for all the times that we do sort of see, let's say some passages that make us uncomfortable, right? Um, and we certainly know we have encountered some and will encounter you know, when I read these types of passages, I'm like, okay, like, you know, they were, 
you know, this was this is pretty unequivocal in terms of its support in of where women's, you know, you know, places in terms of the marriage and, you know, supporting sort of a certain type of right for women um, and and what the what a what a balanced marriage should actually um, look like. Um, but then the Gemara goes ahead. Um, so first of all, so I think it's reassuring and it's it's nice to see. But then the Gemara goes ahead and does something uh, sort of interesting with this. I'm a Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. Um, and so Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani comes and says the following in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. And he says, a woman who demands of her husband, right, to fulfill, you know, this mitzvah that a man and woman should be together sexually, right, she will have or they will have sons of whom did not even exist in the generation of Moshe, right? And so they learned this out from a series of psukim, right, from Pasuk and two psukim and Zvarim that appear one, you know, uh, one's Perak Al Pasuk Gimel, one's Perak Al Pasuk Tetvav. Um, and that the idea is, is that right, that um, there's a particular type of Bina or of understanding. And I think this is interesting because we always say Bina is like the characteristic that a woman has, right? So I think it's almost saying in a way that, you know, if a woman is the person who initiates this, her children will be blessed sort of in a way with sort of, let's say, this type of womanly type of wisdom. Um, you know, and so, Anne, when you and I were preparing this, like, I think one of the questions, you know, we thought about this is, what's the purpose of this teaching? Was it in a way of almost a way of encouraging women that it's okay to, you know, I think there's a cynical way to read this, right? Like, obviously, the men had some benefit if women, you know, requested of this of their husbands. But could we also look at it in sort of an empowering way, particularly when the next discussion goes to sort of all of the curses of Chava. And one of the curses is, is that women basically, it will be difficult for them to sort of speak up, you know, um, that. Wait, wait, before you get to the curses yeah. of Chava, I just want to, um, I just want to backtrack for a moment, right? Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmani said, Rav Yochanan said, right? All of this business is the positive side, right? The, if the woman approaches her husband and I, and I do, you know, with a twinkle in my eye, I guess I can understand this, what we said, cynical, right? That the Gemara itself is fundamentally encouraging right, women. If only they would learn say, this, like, stuff, this but, but the women thing. have to learn the daf. Right. What did you say? But the women have to learn the daf, meaning, right? Like they, the idea that the women knew this piece of Gemara is also an interesting thing. Right. In other words, but I want to take it back. Transmitted? Right. How is this transmitted? How is this actually taught? So I think, right. So I could see this as being, first of all, really a, a Torah of empowerment. And the second piece is exactly as you said, Anne, like, how is this taught to women? Right. You, you don't need to teach it to the men. It's something that really needs to be to be taught well, to the women. So I, again, I just, so I think it's, I think that you're doing, so again, with my cynicism, I, I, find it generous to suggest that it's an empowerment as opposed to um, men having a teaching, which I'm not doubting the truth of it, but it's also somewhat self-serving, we might say. But I just want to I just want to take it back a bit, because um, after the initial statement by Rami Barhama and Rav Asi, right, about, you know, no rape in marriage, Rav Yoshua Ben Levi says that if he does go ahead and force his wife, Right, they will have unworthy children. 
כל הכופה אשתו לדבר מצווה, הביאנו הבנים שאינן מהוגנים. So I think that this bit of Rashmul Bar Nachmani is the, con- the counter to that point, right? Meaning, men were not allowed to engage in spousal rape. And then the next bit says, but if you do, you're going to have this punishment of having unworthy children, right? There, there's a certain recognition that this did take place. And then, <coughs> I get, then I get, as, as you say, skipping down a bit, Rashmul Bar Nachmani takes it to the, to the you know, to the vastly opposite side of the spectrum of saying, okay, now you're talking about people who, you know, very much want to be together and they're going to have wonderful children. Right. That's true. Yeah. It's definitely meant as a, as a counterpart there. And I, 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 you know, it's just, it's an interesting passage. And I think for the reasons, you know, who learned it, how was it taught? Was this, you know, did women know this piece of Torah? Um, and then I think we need to get to, you know, the next piece, which is, um, you know, the, the Esser Klalot Nitzka right? The Rav Yitzchak Bar Abdimi brings down here. Um, and so, Dichtiv, right? So they quote the Pasuk from Bereshit, Paragimel Pasuk, Tetzayin, El Ha'isha Amar Harbei Arbe. So, right? So this, you know, to the woman, right? Hashem said, I will greatly multiply, right? So what are they? Elu Shnei Damim, right? So it's the two drops of blood that we say women have. Achad dam nida, right? The blood of menstruation. Vachad dam betulim, right? The blood of virginity. Itzpunech, right? Your your pain. Zet sa'ar gidul banim. So this is the the pain of raising children. Veheronech, zet sa'ar ha'ibor. So that's the pain of pregnancy. Be'etzav telde banim. Kemashma, right? And that's the, as it says, you know, it's the pain, as it, uh, you know, it's plain meaning. That it's the the pain of actual childbirth. Baal ishech tishukatech, right? Milamech aisha mishto ketet al baala b'shaat sheyotzei derech, right? And yet you'll desire shall be your husband. So this teaches us that a woman desires her husband when he leaves, when he sets out on you know the road. V'hu yimshol bach, right? And so he shall rule over you, right? Which is always, I think, for many of us today, a very disturbing pasuk. Right. And so this to me is the piece of the Gemara that's really, I guess, even more bothersome to me. I'll just say so. Right. So this teaches the Huim Shobach, right, that a woman demands her husband in her heart, meaning she has things that she wants, but she's never going to actually verbalize them. But a man demands things verbally. In other words, a man's always going to say, what he wants. But then Rav Yitzchak Bar Abdimi adds here, right? Remember, this is supposed to be a klala. This is supposed to be something that's a curse. And he says, yes, but actually, this is actually a good trait in women, that women <laughs> don't actually speak up for themselves. I don't like this. I'm bothered by it. I have nothing good to say about that. <laughs> like, I'm just saying it. Like, to say that a curse is actually a good thing, um, and it bothers me. Well, as a not about this in particular, but, you know, a curse, I think you can often see anything that has this kind of character trait. It's got a positive side. It's got a negative side. But here I do think it's presented as a curse because specifically she's she wants to be able to articulate and the implications that she's not allowed or she's not, you know, she's not going to do it even when she feels that she should. She should. Clearly, we live in a different era where even though I think it's true that many women do not articulate you know, needs or, or, you know, this is, it comes up all the time in, um, 
in salary negotiations, right? Where, you know, where the man gets a bigger raise or gets a raise at all. And the difference is because she didn't ask, right? And if she had simply put forth a question, then maybe she also would have gotten the same situation, you know, the same, the same benefit. Um, but again, I don't think we think that this is necessarily, you know, neither required nor positive. And we should mention, right, that all of these curses, for all that they are curses, we, the halacha never says that they are mandatory, right? That's why, that's why painkillers are acceptable during childbirth. Well, and so right. On. And not just even that they're not mandatory. I mean, and I'm trying to remember where I learned this, but the idea that I think some people say, which is things that have changed in the modern world, maybe like a tikkun for some of these things, right? That, oh, lovely. Like, in other words, I, I'm going to say it's something I heard from Rav Lichtenstein, my Shana Alifir in Madrash at Lindenbaum. But like, I want to like find the quote, but like, that's what's popping in my head. But the idea of, you know, that famous Mishnah, um, uh, you know, Masachat Shabbos, which says that women die in childbirth, you know, for not fulfilling those three mitzvot of, you know, Chala, Nida, and Hadlakatne wrote. And the idea is, is that doing those three mitzvot is actually like a tikkun for what Chava did, right? So the idea that the Chala, because Adam, you know, now had to work hard, right? Getting food was difficult, right? Nida, or keeping those laws of Tarat and Mishpacha, is for, you know, for, for this type of curse that the woman got. And then the idea of Hadlakat wrote is obviously, you know, in a very visual, symbolic way, actually bringing light into, uh, into the world. Um, now, again, I like I know this. There are, I like right, that. I, I've always liked that. It's always stuck with me. I know there are people who definitely would be like, that's still an apologetic. Um, but it's, that's something that I've always liked. And the idea that the fact oh, that but see, happened, here's, I'm going to defend it. It's, here's why it's not an apologetic. It says this was a problem and we're attacking it, meaning, and we right. can, we have the opportunity to fix it as opposed to saying this was never the case in the world to say this was never the case in the world. I mean, I don't think it's the case for everybody, but it's certainly a phenomenon. Certainly childbirth can be painful, Right. Whether you think that that was a curse or not, it's certainly the way of the world. Right. But I think what we're I think what we're both moving towards is the idea that just because these curses were true or these observations of life were true doesn't mean that that's how it has to stay. Although when you do see this statement, and I think maybe that's what bothers me, you know, with this sort of uh, final you know, statement here, it's sort of saying it's something that shouldn't change. And I think I've always viewed this curse as something like, yes, it's a curse that women were given. Um, but, you know, the idea is that society should somehow move past that. And, you know, that I at least feel blessed to live in a day and age where we are seeing movement in many of these areas. I'm into that. All right. I'm going to jump now to the very end of the DAF, which is a whole it's a whole new topic, really. Um, and it begins it begins a little bit bo- before the focus that I want to bring to it. The idea that is a it's a verse from the book of Job, Eov, that says that you know God has taught the beasts of the earth and and also the birds of the sky the idea that we people human beings could learn wisdom from the animals if we were but paying attention. And then it takes it a step further, or Rabbi Yochanan takes it a step further. I'm Rabbi Yochanan, this is the part I want to pay attention to. Il malei lo Torah. Had the Torah not been given, ayinu lomdim we would have learned modesty from a cat. We would have learned 
um, that stealing is a problem from an aunt, um, fidelity, marital fidelity from the dove, and the way to have proper relations between from the chickens, the way the rooster appeases first the hen and then mates with the with with this with the with the hen. Um, so this this little little passage, and it's really about you know, is there in fact anything to be learned from animals as opposed to people being human beings? I mean, being at a higher level than the animals. It goes a step further because it says, what about if the Torah had not been given? And this raises a question which is discussed all over the place. And you want to mention Rav Lichtenstein, he also has an article on this, that the question of, is there an ethic independent of halacha? Meaning, are there things that we would learn how to comport ourselves to behave amongst, you know, here with modesty, with fidelity, with honesty, right? These are really important traits for a society to live. And look, we could have gotten all of these things simply by examining or observing the animal kingdom. Perhaps we don't even need the Torah. Now, obviously, the answer is, of course, we need the Torah. We learn these things from the Torah. The fact that these things are also in the animal kingdom, if anything, I would say it confirms, you know, how important these things are. But but it's an important discussion that goes far, far beyond the scope of this podcast, you know, in terms of, again, an ethic that's independent of halacha. Why do we have a separate Torah, if we could learn it from nature. Why does nature have this if we could learn it from Torah? It's a beautiful passage um, that really, I think, says that a lot of the ethic that we live by as Jews is actually the ethic of the world. Um, And also, I think it says something about sort of observing what's around us. I mean, I always find, I live in a city that we live in such a sort of humans it's such a human-centric experience I think if you live more around animals or more in nature that may not be the case um I I'm actually pretty sure it is not the case um but when I read passages like this I feel so out of touch with nature like I think just the experience of being much more aware of the animals around you and what happens in the world around you actually is very good for a person's soul and teaches us a lot well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you got your podcast. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadram website. We're looking forward to learning with you during our Siyum from Asachet Eruvin. The time is coming close. Until tomorrow, go and learn. 